Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about his word. I just realized something. He wasn't sleeping on a pillow. He was sleeping on purpose. Something to say I think is important but not essential would be like the inerrancy of scripture. Um, oh, wow. And okay. I hold to the inerrancy of scripture. Okay. The title of my sermon tonight is Why Church Nurseries Are Unscriptural and Wrong. And so that's why I have a baby on my hip right here. There is a level of anointing that I believe is going to invade your homes, invade your sight, invade your senses. Um, that's going to, I literally feel that chains are going to break off of you. Do you think I'm wrong? Yeah. 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 Yay! Yeah. So am I a bad guy for saying you're wrong? Yeah. I am? Yeah. <laughs> that's not fair. Hey, by the way, you are a slave. If you're not a slave of Christ, you're a slave of sin. You aren't free. Choose your master. Give us some men who know the truth. So, Stephen, my friend, you wrote a book. How does that feel? <laughs> it was, um, it took a while and it was a process. And I learned a lot through the process, but um, I'm I'm glad it's done. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I I was surprised at uh, how big the book is. I don't have it with me. It's by my side of the bed at home. I didn't expect it to be as thick as it was. You you didn't just write a book. You like wrote a big book, Stephen. Right. Four hundred pages. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's 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 like, you know, I don't read much myself. So it's like a book that I would never pick because it's too long. <clears throat> but I did put lots of pictures in it. Yes. Yeah. And pictures are great. Th those are really helpful to help see what's being described. I really enjoyed that aspect of the book, too. And it is funny. I mean, you you talk about being dyslexic in the book, um, not reading your first book until after you graduated college. You talk about how you're not a natural speaker and how that was really what freaked you out about a lot of things in missions was having to speak. And it's like, here you are today doing an extended interview about a 400 page book you've written. Did you ever think you would end up here? No, <laughs> no, it's, it's probably the last thing I thought I'd ever do is write a book. It's still hard for me to pass it out to friends without being embarrassed you know that i've written a book <laughs> embarrassed embarrassed yes. what do you mean um it's just it's it's the last thing i think anybody would have expected from me so <laughs> well i'm glad you did it and i'm sure you know you're you're glad that you did it in your heart of hearts you're glad that you did it and you want people to read it because it's not a story that uh, your life story it's not a story that exalts yourself it's exalting the god who has brought you through so many interesting things. And I would like to spend some time kind of exploring your uh, your pre-conversion life because the vast majority of the book is post-conversion and missions in your life in uh, Eastern Europe and Russia and doing wrestling as a way to get into those countries and to uh, do Christian missionary work. But I'm curious about some things about your upbringing. Uh, for instance, one of the things that you mentioned in the book was that you were raised in a Christian context. So you want to give some more background as to what that looked like? Yeah, we we went to a, um, it was a conservative congregational church um, in St. Louis till I was probably 
six years old, and then we moved to um, Ohio. And after that, we were always in a Baptist church of some kind, always conservative. Um, I heard Bible stories and about Jesus uh, in Sunday school growing up. Uh, my mom read Bible stories to us every evening before we went to bed. Um, heard a lot of sermons over the years. And really, there wasn't a time in my life where I didn't love God, um, where I didn't believe in God. I always believed in God. And, you know, I when I was a little kid, probably six years old, I prayed to receive Christ. You know, I, I, I wanted him in my life. Um, but there's a lot that I didn't understand. Yeah. And through life experiences, um, I began to understand some things and come to some conclusions. And <clears throat> that's when I decided to commit my life to God and, and really live for him, put him first in my life. Mm. But it was a process. Yeah. What about your uh, your siblings? I remember in the book you talk about, I think, brothers. But how many brothers versus sisters? And where Two brothers and one sister. Okay. And where do they end up spiritually? They're all believers. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I, my, my mom and dad, they were so faithful to instructing us the way that we should go, you know, mm -hmm. and um, I, I think it's been a process for most of us, but yeah, I think we're doing good now. Amen. Well, that, that proverb rings true, right? Bring up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. Um, yeah. That's, that's amazing. Uh, God's faithfulness there. And so you uh, were raised in a Christian context and you were also raised in uh, at least off and on, if not continually in a farming context, which is where you, where you are now too. It's, you've kind of come full circle in some ways, I guess. Uh, farming has also been a big part of your life, huh? Yeah. Um. We, when we lived in Massachusetts, we had a 50-acre farm. It was the original acreage for this house that was built in 1790. Uh, we owned the land, and the border of our land was a um, stone wall that had been built about the same time as the house. And I loved that farm there. I was in the 4-H sheep club. I raised sheep, but I always wanted cows. But anyway, in our, in our area... Almost nobody had cows. So I uh, showed my sheep in the local grange fairs. Um, and then we had to move to Los Angeles when I was 14, about halfway through my freshman year. <clears throat> and California, well, Los Angeles was a long way from the farm. Oh, man. <laughs> I, Massachusetts to Southern California. It's like, how, how much farther apart can you get? Boy, and, and really culturally, you mm. couldn't have gotten any further apart. We had to wear slacks and button-up shirts in uh, Massachusetts. Everything was pretty formal. When I got to California, uh, jeans, T-shirts, and Led Zeppelin playing in the cafeteria. I didn't even know what that was. Uh -huh. Yeah, so very different, long way from the farm. But there's this farm in Missouri where you live now that that has been in your family, a uh, lot of acreage there, and you've embraced 
You've embraced the farm. This is your life now. Oh, well, yeah, it's part of my life. Okay. <laughs> my neighbor, he took over in 1991 when we left for Russia, and he's still farming my farm. So, okay. yeah, I do a few things around, but and we've got some cows that we take care of. You're, you're a farmer I, supervisor, maybe. That's that's a good way to put it, huh? <laughs> I, I wish I could say that. No, my farmer, he knows what to do without any supervision. If I supervised, I'd mess things up. Okay. Well, yeah, it's amazing. And to think you moved too from uh, what Massachusetts to Los Angeles back when it had to be a horse and carriage. I mean, that, that had to take a long time. <laughs> it wasn't quite that long ago. Oh, okay. All right. Well, um, let's get into wrestling then. So, cause wrestling obviously is a major part of this story. Uh, you went from wrangling sheep on the farm in Massachusetts to eventually you are hitting the mat, you're wrestling and it turns into something that you enjoy and that apparently you have a, you have a skill at. So you want to give, I, I know in the book you go into detail, but just give a flyover about how you got into wrestling when you were in school. Right. Um, in Massachusetts, I, I mean, I love sport, so I had to do something. And uh, so I went out for basketball. So when we moved to California, I told my basketball coach, you know, um, I'm sorry, I'm leaving the team. I'm, I'm moving to California. He looks up from his, his uh, clipboard, and I don't think he even recognized me. I definitely wasn't one of the better players on the team. And he said, oh, okay, see ya. So anyway, at my new school, very first day, I found out they had a wrestling team. And uh, somehow I always felt like I was a wrestler. So I went out for wrestling my first day in the new school. And uh, I loved it right from the start. Um, my coach told me later, he just heard a lot of noise. <laughs> and people getting thrown around. No <laughs> points being scored because I didn't know what that meant yet. But so anyway, um, two weeks later, varsity guy gets sick. JV guy hurts his shoulder. And I've got to wrestle for the team. Um, my first match was against the league champion. So I'm walking out on the mat and my coach gives me instructions. He says, don't get pinned. I followed his instructions for 52 seconds. 52. And, uh, that's when I got pinned. But right from the start, um, I loved it. And uh, it became this real big part of my life. And I, I, did I got better pretty fast um, as I had more practice, you know? Hmm. Well, yeah, uh, you, you got really good. Um, you eventually, you know, excelled to the point of being able to wrestle in, at the division one school and make your way to the top there. But that also was what God used to, to really break you. Huh? Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, a teammate of mine and I, we uh, we won the California State Tournament in 1973, California's hmm. first state tournament ever. They put all 10 sections of California together in one big state tournament. Um, I, I actually went with my teammate, John Jackson, to the 50th anniversary of the California State Tournament. They had a special ceremony where they wanted all the original – uh, state champions to march and so uh we went we went for that um and 
we were recruited to several different schools, but we chose Oklahoma State because Oklahoma State had, um, they had won, at, at, by 1973, they had won 27 national team titles in, in wrestling, and they had 90 national champions. So we didn't know that. We realized that when we were there on a recruiting trip, and so we said, yeah, this is where we want to go because my goal was now to become national champ. I worked really hard. I got a little better each year. And uh, finally, when I was a senior, I won the tournament. I thought that was going to make me happy the rest of my life. I, I thought it was going to completely fulfill me. But uh, by the next morning, that feeling of happiness was already gone. Hmm. So I realized that there were things are, are actually God helped me realize that there were things um, in life that are more important than achievement in sport. I had made sport, made wrestling basically my idol. That was number one in my life. And um, after realizing some things, I was, uh, I wanted to put God first in my life and, and uh, I wanted to continue wrestling but I wanted to wrestle now for his glory rather than wrestling for my own glory. Um, was the full or was the wrestling a full ride situation for you? Did you get college paid for because of that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That was back when college was really expensive. It was $2,500 a year for <laughs> out of state tuition. And that included, you know, of course, room and board. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah how, how did anyone ever ever pay for that wow uh yeah. what, what did what did mom and dad think when you really started to go headlong into wrestling in high school and then this was what you were going to do through college how did they feel about that you know my dad he uh he wasn't a an athlete but he had two older brothers that were like football stars mm. um his dad my grandfather played in the we, well, you know, our family came from St. Louis. He played in the St. Louis Olympics basketball hmm. back in uh, 1904. Now his his team didn't win. There was a team from Buffalo that won. Only American teams were in this thing. <laughs> so, because uh, it was an introductory sport. But anyway, he was he was he was a you know an athlete also a star basketball player. Um. So my dad he he had an appreciation for sport and his older brothers were like his heroes. So um, even though he was like a, a rocket scientist, literally he worked on all the uh, Apollo projects, um, engineering different parts. Um, he did have an appreciation for sport. And, and uh, I, I think he was proud of my achievements. Hmm. Okay. So that, that wasn't a source of tension then with your parents that you were, wrestle wrestling guy they didn't have any kind of uh i don't know bias against wrestling no ah. yeah well uh as you were going through you know high school and eventually making your way to a being a champion in high school and you were going through college there at oklahoma state and making your way to being a ncaa champion at oklahoma state how did this idolatry aspect with sports build was it like after you have some success you'd look at yourself in the mirror and flex a little bit and think, Hey, I look pretty good kind of thing. Or, or what was, uh, what was really at the heart, I guess, of that 
of that idolatry? Was it the, um, was it self? Was it having a platform that you'd be in front of others that they would look up to you? Uh, what, what was it? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I think the, the root of it was my motivation for wrestling. Hmm. Um, and definitely I was um, wrestling to <clears throat> um, glorify myself, you know, so that people would look up to me or um, think that I was important or something. And, and wrestling became my identity. Um, and it actually, I, I think in the end, it was a detriment to my wrestling. In my junior year, I was undefeated at Oklahoma State uh, all year long, ranked first all year long, seated first in the national tournament. And I managed to lose to a guy who wasn't even seated. He'd only won probably 50% of his matches that year. <clears throat> um, I was so afraid of losing that um, what, what had made me good was this really aggressive style. You know, I just went after guys. I wasn't afraid to do anything. You know, I, I and I lost some points every now and then, but I would always get them back, you know. Uh, it was a it was a pretty crazy style of wrestling, and in those matches, I wrestled really conservative. So what had made me good, I completely abandoned that style because of this fear of losing. Um, Kyle Schneider is a famous wrestler now for America. He's he's still competing. He won the the uh, world championships when he was nineteen. He won the Olympics when he was twenty. An upper weight. Anyway, he said, and I, I hope I'm not misquoting him. He said something like, um, if you want to win more than anything else, the thing you're going to fear most is losing. And he said he got really nervous before matches. He completely changed his uh, philosophy of wrestling to just going out there and doing the best he can and doing it for God's glory. And he said it made all the difference. And um, really, I wish I would have understood that earlier in my my wrestling career. I, I wish I would have used wrestling as a platform. I had plenty of chances to speak, to, to talk to folks about my faith, but instead I just talked about wrestling. You know, um, I, I wish I would have used wrestling as a platform to um, share my faith with other people, to positively influence people toward toward God, um, rather than self-glorification. Well, especially, I mean, I, I imagine your junior year, that match that you lost in the tournament to the guy who wasn't even seated, uh, you were number one seed. He was unranked. And that's the end of your season, I imagine, right? I mean, losing in the tournament, that was the end? Um, you know, uh, this guy did make it to the finals. Okay. So um, I wrestled in the consolation bracket. And literally, I wrestled the best matches of my life. I didn't care about winning or losing anymore. I just wanted to wrestle. Um, one of my first matches was against a defending national champ who had lost to the eventual champ by, uh, I think it was a point in overtime. I was beating him 10-0 
when I pinned him less than a minute into the match. Mm -hmm. uh, the guy I wrestled for third and fourth was was a, a good wrestler. Uh, I scored 20 points on him in this match. So, yeah, I, uh, I, <laughs> I wrestled some of the best match, but it was using my style, you know, the, uh, the go-after-him style. Yeah, the, the fear was gone because you already lost that initial match. And so it was like, yeah. well, I got nothing left to lose. I'm just going to do what I want to do. Huh? I'm just going to wrestle. Yeah. yeah, it's true. Yeah, well, I imagine that had to be humiliating when you were in that mindset of self-glorification and you lose in that opening round. That had to be just a, a humbling, a, a real truly humbling moment for a 21-year-old or however old you were at the time. Uh, yeah. Which, you know, looking back, obviously, you know, it could have been a great time for you to to share how, well, wrestling isn't my ultimate, that Jesus is my ultimate, but your heart just wasn't there yet. Right. And it's amazing that God used your winning to bring you to that point. Because you would think like, okay, well, that would be the moment when a guy loses a very important match, he'll hit rock bottom. <laughs> but, but it actually took success for you to be broken, which is kind of like a paradox, I guess. It is. You know, um, I've always kind of likened it to uh, Solomon when he writes in Ecclesiastes. He he lists all of his accomplishments. He lists all the things that he has. You know, he's the richest guy in the, on earth, the most powerful guy on earth. Uh, he has everything. He's got a harem of a thousand supermodels from the ancient world. Um, and sprinkled throughout all of this, is the phrase uh, striving after the wind and vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And it took, and I, I, I didn't come up to that conclusion like Solomon, you know, uh, but I did come up to the same conclusion through wrestling and uh, really in that, in that one event, it, it, it taught me the exact same principle. Anything apart from God, if you, if you have your hope of satisfaction in anything other than God, you're going to ultimately be disappointed because mm. he created us to know him. And that should be the most important thing in our life. Well, yeah, let's, let's jump to that next year where you do have success. Uh, as you were viewing it at that point, your senior year, you become the champion, uh, the NCAA champion in your class for wrestling going into that championship match where you, were you nervous? I mean, what, what do you remember about that time? Where was it a, a mismatch in any way, or uh, what, what was running through your mind leading up to the that final match? You know, it was it was exactly the same as the previous year. I I got out to a lead, you know, right away, and then then I started putting on the brakes, and I I just kept backing up and backing up. I got stalled stall warnings. <laughs> this never happened to me in wrestling hmm. stalling. That wasn't part of my repertoire. Because um, you're an aggressive guy. You're not a tiptoe no. guy. Um, I got um, almost as many stall warnings and stall points against me as you can get before you get thrown out of the match. Hmm. So um, I think with like a minute left, we're on our feet. It's, it's tied. And I'm still stalling. And I get it. I get another stalling point against me. Now he's ahead. I got one minute left in my college career. And it was like a light bulb went on, you know, it's time to wrestle. 
<laughs> and so anyway, I went after him and um, ended up picking up eight points in the last minute and beating him 12 to five. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. And I imagine they do the podium thing uh, where it's like, okay, you're your first place. They, they obviously hold up your arm to signal that you won the match, but then there at the end, they've got maybe top three or whatever. You got first place. What were you feeling in that moment? What do you remember about that? Uh, you know, I, I say I was happy until the next morning. You know, I don't even remember being happy up there on the uh, podium. I just remember being relieved hmm. that I finally won and it's all over, you know. Hmm. So I don't, I, I've got a few pictures of me up on the podium and I, I don't think any of them's got, I've got a smile on my face. It's just this huge sense of relief. And, and at that point, I guess you probably thought your wrestling days were just totally done because there you, there you were your senior year. It was the championship to end the year or the tournament to end the year and you were done. I mean, I guess maybe you, maybe you had your eye on the Olympics. That would have been what the, the 80, 1980 Olympics that were coming up. Were you thinking about that at all? Yeah. I, I wanted to continue wrestling. Oh, okay. And, and, and so, and, and I did continue but I, I continued with completely different motives, mm. you know. Um, and a, a lot of people think, well, if, I mean, if you make a real commitment to Jesus, you're you're going to be soft or weak or too compassionate. <laughs> um, it's different uh, than that. I um, I actually worked out harder. I had a much higher reason uh for wrestling than when i was wrestling for myself well explain explain how you got there because you're talking about next morning the, the next morning was a real sense of emptiness so take us yeah. to that next morning after the championship match and how god got you to the place of where you're still wrestling but with a new view and you're actually working harder how did that evolution happen um yeah, I, I I did give you the short version. There there was actually um there were more things that actually led me to that you know conclusion sure, sure. and and uh that made me ready to join Athletes in Action, which is basically a group of wrestling missionaries. Um the next year at Oklahoma State, I had already graduated. I was working as a an assistant coach, uh, graduate assistant, sorry. Um, we had a new recruit that year, Dave Schultz. Dave Schultz, when he was still in high school, wrestled in a uh, an open tournament, beat the defending national champion. Uh, he was a two-time national champ, most outstanding wrestler. Dave beat him when he was still in high school. So, oh, wow, he's the real deal. Everybody wanted Dave Schultz. Dave decided to go to Oklahoma State. And from the first day, um, you know, September 1st, wrestling practice, I'm, I'm wrestling with Dave. Uh, Dave had this incredible ability to pick up moves. You know, he'd stop me and, and say, hey, how, what'd you do there? How'd you, how'd you do that on me? And I'd show him the move, and he goes, well, how would you stop that? I showed him how to stop it. So um, anyway, we wrestled for like two months. And in November, there's the orange and black match. 
uh, orange and black are Oklahoma State's school colors. Coach divides the best two wrestlers in each weight class up into two teams. They wrestle each other, and the guy that wins, he, um, at least at the beginning of the season, is going to be the varsity guy. So Dave had no worthy challengers in the room, so Coach wanted me to wrestle Dave. I wasn't really excited about that because uh, Dave was two weight classes above me, and I had shown him everything that <laughs> every every bag everything in my bag of tricks. You know, I had already showed him and showed him how to defend it. So, uh, but Coach wanted me to wrestle because he knew that that would draw a lot bigger crowd, uh, and and we'd make a lot more more money on that if that was the featured match. You know, defending national champs. You know, favorite wrestler against this recruit that. Uh, is probably the most highly recruited wrestler ever in, you know, out of high school. So we, we wrestled that night when I got introduced and went out on the mat. I got this standing ovation that I always got when I went out on the mat. Um, and we started, we shook hands, we started wrestling. Dave gets the first takedown and already, you know, there's, uh, people in the crowd clapping for Dave, you know. And then as the match goes on, Dave picks up a couple more points, uh, picking up momentum, you know, this this uh, uh, people yelling for Dave. And by the, by the second period, I mean, the crowd is solidly now behind Dave. Um, and I'm, I'm trying so hard to win. At one point in the third period, I get a hold of his leg. I'm pulling so hard to take him down that I, I break my own rib. Mm. And, um, and I don't, I don't um, stop the match. You know, I don't, I don't, um, it's, it's the referee that stops the match because he sees I'm hurt. Um, now there are people in the crowd, they're actually booing. Hey, ref, he's faking it. You know, make him get up and wrestle. So anyway, I finished the match. Uh, Dave wins, and I think it was seven to two. And um, I had never heard that much noise in Gallagher Hall. The crowd just goes nuts. My coach that I wrestled for for four years comes out of the mat, picks Dave up on his shoulder, and he's carrying Dave around as the crowd goes crazy. Hmm. Uh, D Solomon has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. <laughs> exactly. So obviously, you know, the crowd had a new hero, uh, somebody that was going to probably be a four-time national champ, that, that, which had never been done before. Hmm. Um, so anyway, after that evening, um, I realized obviously that the crowd didn't love me. They love the way I wrestled. They love to be the fan of a champion. They love it when I make points for the team. But me personally, um, you know, I, 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 I was exchanged for another hero pretty quickly. Yeah. You were, you were tossed aside like an old pair of shoes. Like an old pair of shoes. And, um, and I, I, I remember two things. I was tired of wrestling for my own glory because my accomplishment didn't bring me what I thought they would. And I was tired of wrestling for the crowd. 
was tired of wrestling for the uh, the fans because um, although even now I look back, there's no place I would have rather wrestled than Oklahoma State. I realized their limitations, you know, that they really didn't love me. And it was right after that that a couple guys from Athletes in Action um, came. They were in Stillwater. They came to our apartment and challenged me to join Athletes in Action. And God used those two events in my life to really, I was like, lift the curtain, open my eyes to seeing what life is really all about and 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 what the most important things in life really are. Mm. And and that entered you into a world of giving your life for the gospel to reach people in hard to reach places and uh <laughs> a lifetime of stories that you've accumulated now through the decades of going into some really difficult places. And I I would I thought it was interesting because I've obviously known you now for I don't know, 15 years a little more and uh I hadn't really ever heard much about those first years as a missionary when you went to Vienna or that area there. Um, and I love seeing that original prayer card that you had in there in the book um, yeah. uh, that you guys had when you first became missionaries and probably were thinking at times, what on earth did we get ourselves into? Uh, but, but hearing those, those stories of going over to Eastern Europe, I, I hadn't really heard too much about those days. And so uh, what, what an interesting thing you got your family into <laughs> yeah. from the, from the beginning, difficulty, danger, but also so much grace and so much power of God too. Right. Yeah. You, we could feel God's hand on us a lot of times. Um, and I, I love those years. I am so thankful for the opportunity we had to go to those places, wrestling the tournaments, uh, talk to people about the Lord, and mm, God used that time to mature me, give me some confidence in in my in in what He had given me to for His glory. You know. Yeah. What was ministry like then at the beginning? When it whenever you were uh, there in uh, Austria to now where you're going to Mongolia and in Russia and Ukraine and things like that. Well, I mean, what, what was ministry like then? And what is it like now as far as how you got in and how you were able to communicate the gospel? Has it basically been the same or has there been development there? Um, that's a good question. You know, um, one of the things that we did well, we, um, we were used by other churches and other organizations that were that had a permanent ministry in in different regions. We would come in and do an evangelistic wrestling demonstration, uh, which was a lot of fun to watch. It included uh, professional wrestling. I was uh, Cowboy Steve, and <laughs> Carl Dampman was the heavyweight, and he was Der Vernichter, uh, the uh, the destroyer, and he you know wear a a black hose over his face and all black. Oh, and, so you like know, you, your own versions of Jake, the snake plumber and hacksaw, Jim Duggan and those guys, huh? Right. <laughs> we included the, the crowd even in this thing. I, I'd get tossed into the crowd at one point and I'd, I'd come rolling into the crowd and I'd pull somebody's shoe off and, 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 you know, just breathe deep, deep breath, bring, bring it in for, for uh, strength and then come back and, and beat the, uh, the destroyer. <laughs> But we used that 
and it was a lot of fun. Uh, it was interesting. We we showed real wrestling, um, but then we, we would share our faith, uh, and just in that atmosphere of kind of fun and friendship, um, people responded to that. You know, um, so I learned a lot from that. I learned a lot from um, doing athletes in action wrestling camps about you know how to intensively work with with young athletes in a camp context and, um, you know, slowly unveil the gospel, you know, during the week in our evening programs and then, um, and then really give them a good idea of how a person can come to, come to know the Lord. So anyway, I learned so much through all of that. Um, and God slowly began to open my mouth. (laughs) I originally joined athletes in action when when uh, Larry Amundsen and Gene Davis, the coach, uh, came to our apartment in Stillwater and challenged us to join Athletes in Action, I said, I'll join, but I don't do any talking. So they said, that's okay, Steve. Uh, we got a whole team and the guys that are good at speaking, they'll speak. But sooner or later, we, we're going to help you through all that. So I, I literally joined a team of missionaries uh, under the condition I wouldn't have to speak. But God slowly, slowly uh, <laughs> uh, helped to open my mouth. And, you know, now it's hard to keep me quiet. <laughs> <laughs> you went from being the mute missionary to an actual missionary. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the opposition. Um what, what what was some of the first opposition you experienced in doing overseas mission from uh, governments? You know, I, I've, I've read, uh, certainly not all the book, but I've read enough of the book to hear about what you were facing there in Eastern Europe, which almost sounds like a different world. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine what you were going through, but can you describe what that opposition was like? Mm, you know, I don't think I was ever nervous for myself. Um, but in in Eastern Europe at that time, uh, we would be followed, depending on the country, we would be followed by, you know, uh, AGB guys. Um, so we, we were more nervous about meeting with believers, um, getting them in trouble. Um, so how, how did they know to follow you? What, what did they... How were they able to access information? What kind of information did they access to know that you were someone they should follow, I guess? You know, you had to register everywhere you went. You had to register. So, and if you didn't register, you got in trouble. So there were lots of rules. Um, they, it, it wasn't hard to figure out who we were, you know, <laughs> that we were foreigners. So, um Anyway, that yeah, that wasn't a hard job. And so today. just just by by virtue of being a foreigner, being American, and having an American accent, an American name, and all that stuff, you were worthy of being followed just for that reason, probably back then, huh? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I remember uh, we drove to the Soviet Union in 1983, and um, our where we were supposed to go to a hotel it was called hotel camping it was actually you know uh like permanent tents that you know you could stay in that was the cheapest place and 
So that's that's what I chose. You had to have your itinerary chosen before you ever went there. It was part of the visa process. So uh, according to my visa and, and uh, our itinerary, we we go to this place in in Kiev, and we're driving around and we can't find it. And this car is following us. Now, you, you ask, how, how do they know how to follow us? Well, part of it was the car we were driving. It, was, it wasn't Soviet, you know. Hmm. So anyway, immediately, somebody's following us. Um, and we can't find where we're going. So I stopped the car. And I, I flagged the guy, you know, to come alongside. And he stops, too. He comes alongside. And a buddy of mine who spoke Polish, and this guy understood, he said, uh, can you tell us where camping is? The guy goes, I don't know where it is. He says, we know you're following us. You're going to go there anyway. Why don't you just lead us? And he goes, oh, okay. You know, that made sense. <laughs> so so the KGB guy leads us there. But yeah, we were we were following. Um, one, one time in, um, and we didn't get in trouble very often, but one time in Czechoslovakia, we smuggled in a bunch of Bibles. We knew the Russian team was going to be there, or the, I should say the Soviet team. Um, and we knew the Czech national team was going to be at this training camp. So we brought Bibles in both Czech and, uh, and Russian. Uh, and it was probably New Testaments. And back then, it, for, for guys trying to get stuff in, they made it really small print on uh, almost like newspaper. But anyway, they were really small and compact and we brought a bunch of them. So we were giving them out to the wrestlers, both Soviet and uh, Czech wrestlers. The coach pulls us in and says, hey, you guys can't do that. You know, you've been passing out Bibles and for political reasons, we're really glad you're here, but for political reasons, you know, you, you can't continue that. So uh, we said, okay, we won't. And um, the assistant coach follows us out and goes, I didn't know you guys had Bibles. Give me one. And, and we had to tell them, we really were out of them. We don't have any more. Uh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I imagine just at every turn, there was possibility of people just hearing about what you're doing and trying to shut it down. I, You yeah. said national team. So like at an event like that, going back to whatever year that was, you said Czech national team, Russian national team. These are like college age guys. They're like, I guess what we would view as like their college national team, or are they older than that? What, what, who are those people? I guess. You know, juniors, junior level wrestling goes up to 20 years old. So senior level is after that, anything after that. And um, so we had, we would go to their senior national training camps. There'd be any, People anywhere from 20 to, you know, I mean, they wrestled sometimes up to 30 hmm. because it was their job. Okay. And so you would, you would be able to, as a member of athletes in action and whatever kind of relationship they developed in these countries, you were able to go to those training camps as what were you doing? Like uh, teaching or competing with them or uh, training or what did that look like? Right. Um, in all, in my overseas wrestling um, career, I wrestled in in 15 different international tournaments. 
So um, in all but two of those, I was in the finals and uh, I won eight of them. So um, it was it was me. And then we had another active wrestler, Don Schuler, who was always at the top. Also, he was always on the podium. Um, so they were glad to have us come and work out with their guys. And, and but even bigger than that, we had John Peterson with us who was an Olympic champion wrestler, still relatively young. Um, and he uh, was working out also. And yes, he would show some stuff. So um, at tournaments, we would get invitations all the time to come and wrestle with their uh, national team in, in, in various training camps. So anyway, okay. we had a lot of open doors. And... In the context of sport, it was so much easier to openly, um, you know, talk to, to wrestlers about the, the Bible. We there were there were national teams that actually met with us in Bible studies with the approval of their coach during that time frame. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you're you're these wrestlers with international clout then, and uh, and God was just opening doors where you were able yes. to do Bible studies. That's amazing. Um, and I don't want to get too sidetracked from the missionary aspect of all this, where I want to spend a lot of our time here, but this is, of course, we're, we're kind of like hovering around that 1980 and 1984 Olympics. Um, but the 1980 Olympics were that those were taking place in Russia, right? That's why we as America didn't participate. Right. We boycotted the Moscow Olympics because of the war in Afghanistan. And that that, you know, that so would have been your gold medal. We we, we you missed. Well, it. I I I would have liked to have won. Yes. <laughs> so what, what, what what was going through your mind at that time then? Because I mean, I obviously if you know you wanted to keep wrestling after college, the Olympics yeah. right there on the horizon. I was like just sitting there for the taking, and I know I know this is your your view of wrestling had changed, but that had to had to hurt still, huh? Yeah. Um, I did try out for the Olympics. We, you know, there's Olympic trial tournament. I, I actually won the tournament somewhere between the tournament and the final camp where the final selection is made, you know, who's, who's going to represent the U S um, there, the boycott was already in effect. I mean, there was no way we were going to go. So I, I didn't actually go to the final trials. I, I ended up going to uh, helping with athletes in action, summer camps, but um a year and a half before the Olympics, I wrestled the guy who uh, ended up winning the Olympics for the Soviet Union. Uh, he wrestled the Bulgarian in the finals, and he beat the Bulgarian, I think, 6-0. So he was pretty dominant. His name was Saipula, Saipula Apsaidov. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> a household name. Yes, as, as you know. <laughs> so, um, anyway, we had a, we had a pretty good match in, uh, in the Soviet Union. It was in Georgia, Tbilisi, Georgia. Um, the final score was 12 to 13. Um, he was ahead by a point. I was holding him on his back. If I held him on his back for five seconds, I would get an additional point. The score would have been 13, 13. And I would have won on, on what was called criteria. So I'm holding him on his back and that the ref is counting. 
And remember, the guy with the with the clock, it's not a digital readout, you know, where everybody can see it. It's in the Soviet guy's hand. You know, he's he's got a stopwatch in his hand. The referee's counting one, two, three, four. And the guy with the watch, the clock hits the gong, you know, which means the end of the period. So I I suspect <laughs> this has happened all the time. Our match was cut a little bit short for strategic reasons. Mm. <laughs> The Soviets wouldn't do something like that, would they? They cheated. I got cheated so bad in this in the same tournament to get to that place where I wrestled him. This guy in his back, and he was flat for so long. And you have to have two of the three refs have to call in a pin, signal. You know, they they raise their hand, uh, signaling a pin. And one guy would raise his hand, put it down. Another guy would raise his hand, but never two in a row. And accidentally, two guys put their hand up at the same time. So they blow the whistle. They, the three of them get together, and they decide to start the match again. Um, and the head of FILA, the governing body over, over wrestling, uh, Milan Ursigan, he sees this from the head uh, referee table. And he literally leaves that table and comes running to my mat. And these guys see him coming. They quick raise my hand and literally shove me off the mat. Wow. Wow. But, yeah, we, we got cheated all the time. There were some shenanigans going on. Yeah, they talk about self-glorification. They were not comfortable with losing, I guess, huh? That's right. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the KGB and uh, have no idea how much – this is like has to be sensitive or, or private or how much you can talk about it or not talk about it. No idea. So I'm just going to throw it out there and you just answer however you like. Uh, wh what's your relationship with the KGB like been over the years as you've been in and out of Russia and seeking to influence Russians with the gospel? Uh, that's a good question. You know, uh, very minimal, I would say, um, during our years in Moscow, it was when we moved down to the Caucasus Mountain region. Um, they're uh, politically, it's like they're walking a tightrope um, because Russians are ethnically um, Orthodox Christians. And down in the Caucasus, where we were, most of the people groups are um, Muslims. Hmm. So there's always this fine line. You've got to placate the Muslims so that they don't become radicalized. You don't want to give them a reason to become radical. So um, we did have problems with the KGB down there, uh, especially after there was a war in the, the, the Republic that we were living in. The war was in 06 and by 07, we were, I was deported hmm. uh, after several run-ins with the uh, with the KGB during that time frame. So <clears throat> they'd always been watching us, uh, tracking our our movements, uh, not just physical movements, but you know what what we were up to in the Republic. But after that war, there was very destabilizing. They really wanted to get rid of um, anybody that would. <clears throat> cause Muslims to want to become more radical. What did 
deportation look like? Was that a traumatizing event or uh, was it just basically paperwork? Um, I was coming back uh, with another guy on our team, Ben Sprunger. We were coming back from a wrestling camp in Southern Assetia. Um, so anyway, the, we used to be able to cross the Caucasus and come and, and drive. But uh, because of tensions, uh, Westerners were not allowed to go that way anymore. So we had to drive to Blissey, Georgia, and then fly from there into our, our uh, the, the republic that we live in. Probably nobody's ever heard of it, so I, I haven't used the name. It's called the Republic of Kabardina Bulgaria. Ah. It's right next to Karachayva Cherkessia. Oh, well, okay, okay. Now I get it. Now you know the proximity, yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> when 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 we came back in into my home airport, Nalchik is the name of our city. That's when I was detained for three days. Mm. So I was, it's a small airport. There's only uh, a handful of international flights, and they're not every day. So I was put in a room, uh, and on the third day, then I was escorted onto a plane, and it's just going to a random location it's you know i mean it was going to uh antalya turkey and so they put me on the plane and and that was it hmm. yeah yeah I, in in the end i was actually glad it took three days because oh. you know at first i had people high up some w one guy that called me even had access to putin he um he was on putin's like um he was like the minister of, of uh, physical education, which was a, uh, an appointment by the president. So anyway, uh, they called me up. And they said, Steve, we're sorry about what's going on. Um, this is a mistake and, and I'm going to fix it. Yeah. So then they started calling. There were three different guys that uh, were highly placed making phone calls on my behalf. And each one of them got a call from our friends the KGB and uh, said, if you, you know, if you bring up this anymore uh, about Stephen Barrett, then you're, you're going to lose your job. Mm. So each one of them, I said, yes, stop. And that's when it became apparent to me that, wow, it's true. I, you know, I really am going to get deported. And then um, the KGB guys, yeah. Um, they, I mean, they're part of one of the most evil institutions ever. Uh, think about killing so many of your own people, you know, up, up, upwards of 20 million of your own people through their operations, torturing uh, Christians uh, in prisons and killing them too. So I don't know what it was, but... Um, I started praying for these guys, you know, because I, I thought, you know, the, these guys are so far from God. And, you know, they they need they need Jesus. So anyway, um, and I, you know, I wouldn't normally do that. I'm not that good a guy. Trust me. Uh, but, you know, when you're in, in certain situations, I think God gives you the grace to... Uh, to handle it the way 
in a way that would be pleasing to him, you know, and it, and the Bible does say to pray for those who persecute you and uh, not even thinking about that first. Uh, later, I thought about, oh, wow, that's what the Bible says to do. Um, God gives you the strength to do it. So anyway, that's my association with the KGB. So when you, when you say you were detained for three days, does that mean you were actually in a, a jail? I mean, I'm assuming that's what that means. I was detained at the airport. Okay. So I was I was in a room guarded, um, and so my my wife Cindy, uh, she had contacts there in the airport, and they asked, you know, the KGB if if she could come in, and they gave her permission. Hmm. And at one point, she gave me a, you know, one of those real thin mattresses because I was sleeping on the floor and uh, brought me some pizza. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask about food. Like was the KGB feet getting you crackers and water or something or how, how'd that work? I think I I ate twice. Once was the pizza. And once I, I'm pretty sure somebody from the airport brought me some food. Did did you have any interaction with the guards? Uh, You know, you're a fluent Russian speaker. Were you, getting in a deep conversation with them? Not really. No, they, they're always kind of, uh, each time there were several times where I, I was stopped by the KGB and then brought in, but they don't do it themselves. They have, uh, for example, the, uh, immigration service. So I would have all my interaction would be with the immigration service. Well, they, they don't want to detain me. Hmm. You know, um, it's it, they're being forced to do it by these people almost literally behind the curtain. So I had to go. Uh, I've had to go three times to court, you know, to defend myself under basically trumped up charges. Did you did you ever feel like. I don't know, discouraged down deep in your soul that this was happening to you. Like this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And there's so much invasion of privacy going on and just it runs against all of our sentiments and values as Americans who believe in independence. We believe in true freedom of expression and freedom of religion. Did that ever become a hangup for you? Yeah. You know, like my rights are being violated. Yeah. Right. Um, no, uh-uh. <laughs> I, I, I knew where I was. I knew what, what I, I mean, I was well aware of the, the potential problems that would arise. Um, you know, bef- it, it was when I went to Mongolia before I went to Mongolia, a fellow missionary that I knew who had been there for several years and had left, he wrote me the longest email I'd ever gotten um base and his message was basically hey these guys are going to sidle up alongside you act like they're interested but really all they want is something from you mm. um they want to use you so i wrote him a an email back and it was pretty short uh and it was basically you know i've lived in russia for 16 years i am well aware that that is a possibility but um Uh, I told him, 
I gave him the example of Jesus and the 10 lepers where only Jesus heals 10 lepers. And I, I don't, I don't know what it would be like to have leprosy, you know, but it'd be a hideous thing to have, you know, to watch your skin, um, you know, rot off and extremities drop off. It, it'd just be an awful thing to have. So I, and, and I don't know how happy I'd be if, if Jesus healed me from that. Mm-hmm. But, um, Interestingly enough, only one of the 10 come back to thank Jesus. And I said, you know, um, if I do 10 kind things and I only get thanked or appreciated once, that's the same odds Jesus got, you know. So we we can expect that. And I I always expected that up front and especially from the government. So no, it it didn't discourage me. Now being deported from Russia did, because I I had no idea that was coming. All the signs were there. They had even broken into our apartment and got into our uh, computer while we were going to church. You know the KGB. So the signs were there. They were looking for a reason to deport us. Um, but still, it 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 came as this big shock to me. And yeah, it was sad having to leave. Um, you know, the place I, I mean, I loved being there. I loved my work there. I, I really felt being used. I was being used by God there. So it was hard to leave. Yeah. Why didn't that break your spirit when they would do something like break into your home and look at your computer or anything else? I mean, because we know that um, warfare generally happens at multiple levels. I mean, the physical side of things, physically deporting you or physically harming you or detaining you or whatever, that's only one aspect of it. There's also mind games that are played in all of that. Why would you say that didn't break your spirit as perhaps they wanted it to? I don't know. You know, um, there. I mean, listen, there were things that did discourage me over there. Um, And there were times where um, what kept me there was my call. You know, I knew God had called me there and I didn't feel like he was calling me home, Mm. you know, to America. So um, what kept me there was the assurance I had that this was where God wanted me. And, and I knew it was going to be rough. And I like to think that, you know, wrestlers are good at persevering. You know, you're down, but you keep going. You don't stop. You don't let that discourage you. You know, you get taken down. You get up and you get those points back. You know, there's, I mean, that that was part of, I, I'm sure God used that in my life, wrestling, to develop perseverance. Yeah, you're, you're an aggressive guy, right? You don't tiptoe, you're aggressive. That's right. You don't knock, you just knock the door down. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I, I'm curious too, uh, yeah, this is definitely a side thing, but just to, if you had any thoughts on the direction that we're going in our country and experiencing more and more of invasions of privacy and more and more hindrances on what we can say and when we can say it and where we can say it and being policed by our neighbors about the things we say and do. Uh, and if it's kosher with what the powers that be want to happen, uh, having lived through that, 
in an extreme way in Russia and other places where that is more of the norm. Do you have any thoughts on what, what we're experiencing today in America and where this could be all headed? Yeah, I, um, I have no doubt where the direction we're going leads. It, it, it's unquestionable. It leads to a totalitarian regime where we lose all of our uh, rights, literally. Um, and we're running to embrace that. Uh, we are so unaware of um, the signs. I mean, if, if you've lived in, a, in a, uh, a culture like that, I mean, it's just like, like there's billboards up there and people are missing it. You know, uh, pointing toward uh, um, totalitarianism. Yeah, it's. I lament the decisions we're making as a country, mm. for sure. And you know, even my daughters, who are you know basically raised in Russia, they're very politically active, and they they also have that hypersensitivity. They know they know where you know. Um, you, you make this decision, they know where it leads because mm. cause they're they've seen it before. And and you're not one to say, oh, I've lived it, it's not so bad. Uh, <laughs> you, you have lived it, you know it's bad. <laughs> so um it's I a mean, nightmare. So, so so even though it can't stop the gospel, it can still, of course, be a hindrance that we want to avoid, I guess, right? I mean, is, isn't that the right balance we should strike and how we uh, are analyzing that? Well, I mean, if we want to, if we value freedom and we want that for our children, um, yeah, we have to, you know, we still live in a democratic country. We, we, we still have the First Amendment. We can, we can, we can speak. Yeah. Um, if, if we're quiet now, um, we're going to forever hold our peace, you know, mm -hmm. because uh, it's it's quickly being taken away from us. Mm. Uh, one more question on KGB or or just any kind of government guys who were um, who are supposed to stop you in your experiences and missions. Did you ever have any kind of Philippian jailer type moments with them where you had breakthroughs in conversation or seen any of them come to faith? Just curious if that ever happened. Uh, no, uh, not with KGB. Now, my friend Rashid, um, when he was being deported, he was he was being escorted by a car with two KGB agents down down the Caucasus Mountains, um, and it was a real it was a real treacherous road, and you should be going slowly and cautiously. The KGB driver was was just a crazy driver. And at one point, he uh, he took a corner so fast, he would have slid off the road, but he hit an oncoming car, stopped him from going off the side of the mountain. So um, Rashid, he's, he's really bold in sharing his faith. He's from Uzbekistan. It's, it's a really tough place to sh share your faith among Muslims there. Um, so... He was, he was just going to, you know, these guys were taking him to the airport. 
and going to ship him back to Uzbekistan, and he was just going to be quiet, you know, just take it and not say anything. And then after that, um, they're going back. They're still driving this crumpled up car. Um, as they're going back, he shares the gospel uh, to these guys. And one guy was shook. The guy in the back with him was pretty shook up. The guy that was driving, incredibly arrogant. He goes, why would I need God? Look what I just lived through. Yeah, even even though his life flashed before his eyes, he was still obstinate. Wow. Still this, this massive amount of pride. Um, yeah, look, look, look what I just lived through. Why would I need God? So uh, that, that is the wrong conclusion, by the way. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Thank you, God. You must have something for me. Uh, but the, the guy in the back seat literally prayed out loud to receive Christ. So anyway, not not many uh, KGB stories about people coming to the Lord, but that was one. Well, well, I do want to transition to talking about successes over the years. I want us to end on a string of good stories uh, instead of, you know, all this like uh, self-glorification, pride, opposition from government stuff. Okay, we can <clears throat> transition yeah. to, to good things. But could you give a, a big picture view of the dynamic when it comes to competing religions in that mission field that you've been a part of? You mentioned, of course, Islam. And there's also the Orthodox stuff that's going on. How, how do you and athletes in action and the gospel message, how does all of that contrast with that religious culture that's there? Right. Um, I always had a, a, a real interest in studying the religion of the culture that I was living in. I, I wanted to speak specifically to I, I wanted to know what they were thinking so that I could speak specifically to to uh, uh, help them understand the gospel in the context of their their culture. So um, yeah, we uh, we worked with um, uh, Orthodox Christian. We worked with Muslim um, and we spent a lot of time with uh, Buddhism too. Um, five years in Mongolia, but we we spent time in um, Buratia and Kalmekia. I mean, a lot of time in Kalmekia where they're they're Buddhist. Also, I even studied shamanism because <laughs> of the um, you know the importance of shamanism in in uh, Mongolia. So. Um, I remember in, in, in Mongolia, for example, you, you'd have to see their gods, their uh, Buddhist gods. I mean, uh, every house has got a shrine in it, and uh, the shrine will, will have their god, and then it'll, there'll be a Buddha. But the god is almost always Jamsran. Jamsran, he uh, has fangs. He's got a, uh, a crown of, skull head, uh, of skulls. Um, he's got a necklace of skulls. He's shown um, stomping. He's always got always in bare feet with big feet, bare feet, stomping on people, even Buddhist lamas. So um, their their goal isn't really to get to know God. 
to, to love God, to spend time with him, to seek wisdom that can only come from him. Their goal is to avoid him. And they do that by following all the superstitious rules. So obviously their concept of God is very different than ours. And, and so, uh, for example, at our camp, when we've got seven days with these kids, um, in our evening programs, you know, we have testimonies and then we also, uh, each day unveil something different about God's character. Um, and, and why we need God's help. So, um, it's, I think it's important to explain who God is before I offer, oh, hey, would you like to know him and invite him into your life? Um, because their, their concept of God is more like Jamsra. Um, so anyway, it, each religion that we worked in had, um, I, I think, had, had ways of, of helping them understand the gospel. Okay. And um, what what are some of the biggest, I guess, hurdles when it comes to the uh, the main people groups that you would work with? What were some of the biggest obstacles in their minds when it came to embracing what you had to say from the Bible? You know, in, in uh, Islam, the Muslims, uh, especially down in the ca- Caucasus, are... are they're raised to be very zealous, you know, for Muhammad and the Quran. Um, so they're at a really young age, they're taught all kinds of things about Christianity. You know, Christianity's bad because, you know, and there's, there's, there's this long list of things. And so um, one of the things that we did to break down those barriers um, were to try and show acts of love that a Muslim wouldn't necessarily demonstrate toward a Christian, you know? Uh, so anyway, we, um, we had lots of different ideas that the, um, which had an effect on, on a whole, on a whole group of people. They understood really that it was Jesus that was motivating us to do these things. Um, Samaritan so Purse shoebox Christmas presents. You know, uh, passing those out to uh, orphanages, uh, kids in orphanages, kids in rural schools that had, uh, you know, didn't have a whole lot in the little villages that they lived in. So um, in the end, people really did realize um, that the things we were doing, we were doing because of the love of Jesus, really. And I, I think that spoke louder probably than anything else. But yeah, um, when I presented the gospel to a Muslim, it would be um, in a very specific way to help them understand why it was necessary for Jesus to die on the cross and, and how he bore our sin. And, and that we can't get, get to Allah through doing good deeds. Good deeds cannot make up for our bad deeds. There's no court of law in the world where you can defend yourself, uh, you know, from murder or whatever, defend yourself by saying, oh, I've done lots of good things in my life. 
you know, you broke the law, you got to pay the consequences. And uh, God's heaven is holy and righteous, um, perfect. And if we go there, we'll just mess it up. Unless some way, somehow he changes us and forgives our sins. So, Amen. Well, let's, let's talk about some of those successes when people have believed that message. You want to highlight a story or two um, from your many decades of going into these places and sharing that message? Um, Sanjik, uh, well, our, our, my first year in Russia, I had a friend in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who started a um, humanitarian organization called Christ for Humanity, Mark Rollins. He tells me, you're in Russia now. You've got to go to Kalmekia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kalmekia is southern Russia. It actually borders on Chechnya. It's it's right there next to the Caucasus Mountains. And th- you said your first year in Russia, so that would be what year? It would have been 19. We moved there in 1991. This would have occurred in 1992. Okay. So he, he says, you've got to go there because the Kalmek people um, love wrestling and they're... Uh, some tribe of Mongolians. So anyway, when I went there, um, one of the things we did was to go into a um, a wrestling club called Club Boomba. Now, sorry, uh, I'm probably just going to be interrupting you and asking questions along the way because I keep thinking of new things as you share. Uh, I'm assuming wrestling is like the thing when it comes to sports in areas like this. You're not competing against football and baseball and stuff like that. Is right. that a correct view? There are, uh, you know, Russia is very multi-ethnic. It, it spans 11 time zones. The Russian empire kept increasing in size, you know, kept uh, growing and encompassing all these other different people groups. So um, there's like 150 different languages mm. uh, in the former Soviet Union, probably 80 different languages in Russia itself. So yeah, the Kalmecks are a minority ethnic group, um, Mongolian. And um, in this wrestling club, uh, we showed a bunch of American moves, you know, American technique. And then at the end, um, the kids literally lined up to wrestle me. And one of the guys I wrestled that night, his name was Sanjik. And we were to meet five years later. Five years later, the guy who translated for us that night in Club, Club, Club Boomba. He's, he says, oh, uh, on your next trip to Kalmekia, I want you to meet Sanjik. He's one of the best wrestlers here. And he has he's become a believer. So Sanjik, Sanjik and I met. Uh, it turns out, here's what he said. He said, when you guys shared the gospel, I didn't understand a word you said. And it wasn't because we weren't clear. Simple gospel presentation translated by the best translator in the country, who was a Christian. He just didn't understand the concept. The concepts of who their gods, who they are, is so different than ours. It just it just didn't make any sense. Whatever we say didn't make any sense. He said, um, <clears throat> and <clears throat> God sent another four people, so five people total, to explain the gospel to me over a five-year period. And on the the fifth time, it was like the curtain was lifted. I all of a sudden understood. And um, I I received it. 
Um, and then, uh, so anyway, we talked and I realized, wow, this guy was really wanting to serve the Lord, you know. So I invited him to study at the Bible College we had in Moscow. Um, he came and studied. Um, fast forward, he is um, probably the most effective voice for the gospel among the Kalmec people. Uh, he's a missionary to his own people. He's got uh, several churches planted and um, a lot of folks that are missionaries under his uh, discipleship uh, out there. And it's still really hard, but, um, you know, at least there's a voice now out there it's so, among these people. So you planted the seed and four other guys watered. Uh, four other guys came along and, and uh, God gave the increase there in his life. That that's amazing. I, that's right. And I, that's I, where no, no one of those five people can say, I led this guy to the Lord. You know, it was God, literally God who opened his eyes. Yeah. That's amazing. I, um, I was curious as you were mentioning that when he first became a believer and there in the 1990s when he was living in that area, uh, probably the only believer in his family, maybe the only believer. <laughs> he was the only believer he knew, right? Um, what what would he have done for church or any kind of fellowship at that point? Yeah, you've asked a good question. He, uh, <clears throat> he was the first believer in his city of, uh, the name of it is Tsakanaman. First believer, and he was... Uh, ridiculed by his friends uh his family disowned him you know uh you've put our family to shame he was looked upon like a um uh, a traitor to his religion and his culture his people his family um it was it was very difficult yeah there there, there was no group of believers there that he could he could meet with um and and so he studied at the Bible college. Two years later, he finished Bible college and he goes back. So we're fast forwarding two years, 29 people are baptized mm -hmm. uh, in the Volga River. The, the, their, their town was on the banks of the Volga River. 29 are baptized um, because of his witness. Um, and Years later, he told me that his dad, who had been a shaman, tried to lay hands on, on Sanjik um, and transfer the spirit that was in him into Sanjik. Mm. And he, he said, literally, his hair went on edge, uh, on end, and he, he ran out of the house. He, did, he didn't want it. And this was before he was even a Christian. He just knew that that is not what something inside of him was telling him. Something inside of him was telling him that it's evil. So anyway, um, um, and and the church there in Tsakanaman was was born right there that at that time. Um, no, it's incredible. He saw a vision um, when he first became a Christian, and he's in this vision. The the Kalmec people they're in a long line, and they're going forward, forward, forward on real flat ground. And one by one, they're dropping off this uh, the edge of this cliff, which, you know, has no bottom, you know, the bottomless pit, basically. 
And uh, he realizes he wanted God to uh, have him stand in the way and, you know, point a different direction. And so, and, and right after that, we meet and I invite him to study at the Bible college. And so uh, anyway, um, I, I went down there lots of times uh, to help him. Um, one of the things that helped turn the corner was we, we gave out those Samaritan purse shoebox Christmas presents to all, you know, a lot of the little kids in this village, several of the schools. And people began to realize that, hey, Christians aren't that bad of people there. In fact, they're kind of nice. And it it opened them up to start listening rather than looking at him, at Sanjik as a, uh, uh, as a traitor they started actually listening to him. They started actually coming up to him and, and asking questions. So, Well, I imagine that's the, the goal of your missionary efforts has been to see when people are converted, that they turn around and, and go back and reach their own people. I mean, that is probably the most effective, you know, when you, you are of a, that people and you can go to them with the gospel message, you look like them, you, you know, their culture, uh, they know you and, to have what 29 people baptized is a testimony to that kind of impact that that can have. That's amazing. Yeah. How, how often still today in areas like Mongolia or wherever you may be, do you have that same kind of dynamic where if a person becomes a believer, that person's going to be isolated because there are no other believers. Is that a pretty frequent thing still? Oh, especially in, in uh, Muslim areas. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And that that has to be just so difficult whenever um <laughs> there's no church to like I mean what what an embarrassment of riches we have in America most places right where it's like well okay if you uh if you want to go to a church here's a list of 40 good options near you uh whereas you know in their situation they they must feel so alone. Yeah. You know, I I forgot to mention uh when, when I was being deported, uh, one of the guys that worked at the airport, um, you know, he was, he was friends with us. He, he actually went to Bible studies, you know, coming out of a Muslim background, but he'd always, you know, it was kind of fun to go to our Bible studies and, uh, you know, it's it, fun to hang around the younger people that we had there, but he had, he hadn't made any decision. Um, when I was being escorted on the plane by the uh, KGB, Zawur was right alongside me, identifying himself with me in front of the KGB. Okay. Um, so, uh, I mean, I was sad, right? He had the saddest look I've ever seen on a human's face. He called up my friend, the guy that had been with me at the airport, they let him go. They, they kept me, Ben Sprunger. He called up Ben Sprunger, met with him, and prayed to receive Christ that day. And it turns out <clears throat> that after my deportation and, and at the same time that was happening, the other guy that I worked with, we were the same age. We had this plan to go down there together. Um, and we had young, we clicked a team of young people. Um, he was denied a visa, so he couldn't come back. We were both deported, basically, in two very different ways, but we couldn't 
We couldn't ever go back. So um, uh, more happened after we got kicked out than, than all the years that we were there before that. Wow. God used that big time, huh? He did. He really did. Yeah. So what does that mean? What that more happened uh, after you got um, kicked out? Um, just a, a much big, bigger response mm-hmm. to the gospel. A, a lot. Uh, yeah, Zawir was was one of them. Yeah, but then uh, others followed. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, before we finish, I want to mention too. Uh, you were part of a stand-up comedy bit. <laughs> You've heard this, right? I'm assuming. I mean, this isn't news to you, right? That's right. Farmer I, Steve. My coach called me in for a meeting. He goes, Warren, he goes, you need more competition in the practice room. He goes, this is what we're doing this year. We're bringing in this guy named Steve. He's a local farmer. He used to wrestle back in the day. He was real good. I'm like, all right, I'll wrestle Farmer Steve. <laughs> Steve shows up the first day. He's old. He's like... 45, all right? When you see a guy that's 45 and you're 20, like, you're like, I'm not gonna wrestle that guy. I'll play checkers with him or something like that. So for the first like hour of practice, Steve just sits down on the wall like an old guy. Finally, coach goes, uh, Warren, wrestle Steve. I go, Steve, you wanna warm up? Steve goes like this, he goes, that's not a wrestling stance. Oh. I looked at my buddy, I go, I don't want to hurt this old dude. And then they blew the whistle. Steve jumped about a foot and a half in the air. He grabbed me by my chin and my head. He threw me on the mat and proceeded to beat me, like beat me. Like when I say beat me, I don't mean he scored more points than me. He physically beat me. It was like he beat me over the head with me. All right, come to find out, Steve is on the Olympic team in 1980. Nobody told me that. You guys remember what happened in 1980? We boycotted, we didn't go. And apparently Steve was still angry about it. I was, uh, I was sent a clip uh, last, sometime last year of, um, yeah, this guy doing stand-up comedy. Who do you know? Do you remember this guy? Was he telling a true story? Who is this guy who, who used you as an illustration or one of his jokes and stand-up comedy bit? Right. I, um, I've been at, as a farmer here for the six years I was here as a farmer in Missouri, um, I went to University of Central Missouri five years, was in some form or another an assistant coach and helped out with the team. My last year, I went to uh, University of Missouri. I was invited to go there. There was this guy that had the potential of being an All-American. And back then, uh, University of Missouri has a really tough team now, but back then all Americans were pretty few and far between. And this guy had a chance. So they wanted me to come and work out with him uh, for the, his senior year. And hopefully he would, he would all American. So, and that was Greg Warren. So he and I um, went at it for my first day there. And uh, slowly he, he did get better. And he, he did place in the nationals. He was all American. Wow. He would have won if I if he did what I told him to do. <laughs> I told him you go out there and win. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. oh, there you go. Yeah. He why did he disobey that simple instruction? Simple instructions. 
<clears throat> well, okay. I had to bring it up just because I don't know if I've ever had a guest on the show who was uh, featured in a stand-up comedy bit. So. Yeah, I am. I am the punchline now of a of a stand-up comedy routine. <laughs> Farmer Steve. <laughs> Farmer Steve. Yeah, that's right. And, okay. Well, very good. Well, thanks so much for coming on and sharing. The book is uh, the it's the unlikely missionary, right? Not an unlikely missionary. The the unlikely missionary. Yeah, I'll yeah. have a link link to it in the show notes uh, where people can get it. Uh, <clears throat> amazing story uh, that God would use a guy like you to reach people around the world. I mean, isn't that amazing? It is amazing. And thanks for having me on the show.